Thank you, Tony. Morning, folks. Again, good morning again. Uh, let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 12. If you came without one, there's one uh, under the one of the chairs in front of you. I encourage you to follow along. Use your bulletin to... Uh, The outline on the back to follow along as well. Just want to mention what's ahead for the next couple Sundays. I'll be uh, out of town, God willing. Pastor Brian will be uh, preaching from Deuteronomy 4, I believe, the next two Lord's Days. He's going to pick up where he left off uh, when we met outside last. So I know you'll enjoy hearing uh, from Pastor Brian, but that will be uh, next Sunday and the following Sunday. So two weeks, uh, Brian will be preaching to us. Uh, Re Revelation 12, we are uh, pretty much in the dead center of the book of Revelation. We're in a section that uh, I've called the Holy War, and I call it that because that's what others have called it. Uh, it pretty much is a behind-the-scenes look at everything that takes place uh, in the age that we live in. Uh, from Christ's ascension to Christ's return, this is the behind-the-scenes look at what's going on. Uh, we began uh, last week in the first six verses. We introduced three of the main characters uh, in the Holy War, the woman, the dragon, and the child, the male child, which is Christ. And we want to continue on in the next five verses, verses 7 through 12, so let me read that to us as, as we begin today. Hear the word of the Lord. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Let me pray for us as we look into this portion. Thanks, Father, for your word. Thank you that it is living and active and powerful, sharper than any double-edged blade. Use that blade among us today, Father. I pray that you would encourage us by your word, convict us if necessary, strengthen us, uh, draw us to saving faith in Christ if necessary. Uh, we uh, look to your word, your sovereign scalpel, to do its work in our lives today. We commit our time to you, Jesus. Ask in Christ's name. Amen. For three days in August of... 1798, the British Navy and the Navy of the French Republic fought a fierce battle off the coast of Egypt uh, known as the Battle of the Nile. Uh, a large French convoy uh, 
carrying here we go Napoleon Bonaparte uh, on the one hand who had sailed to Egypt to invade the country uh, while on the British side of things the Rear Admiral Rear Admiral Horatio Nelson uh, gave chase across the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, the, F the French army safely embarked uh, on Egypt. The French Navy weighed anchor offshore when Admiral Nelson finally caught up with the French Navy. Uh, Nelson launched an immediate attack. And for the next three days, the Battle of the Nile, as it's known, took place and Nelson engaged the French in a furious sea battle. At the end of those three days of France's 17 ships, only four escaped. Uh, Nelson was hailed as a hero. Napoleon was left stranded in Egypt, and the British gained control of the Mediterranean Sea. So as Admiral Nelson wrote up his after-action report to send to the British Admiralty about the great victory that his Navy had experienced over the French, uh, he said this, he said that victory was not a large enough word to describe what had taken place. Indeed, it was not. It was a complete rout of the French Navy. Victory was not a large enough word to describe the way he had defeated the French at the Battle of the Nile. Well, to you and me, Paul says something in very similar terms in Romans chapter 8, uh, where Paul says that conquerors is not a large enough word to describe what you and I have achieved through faith in Christ. Paul says conquerors isn't a big enough word. You might recall the verse, it's Romans uh, 8.31. I don't know why it's jumping, Jeff. It's going crazy. There we go. I saw it for a minute. <laughs> going to be an exciting morning. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors. Uh, the word hyper- uh, huper is the Greek term. Hyper is used. We are over-conquerors, super-conquerors. Uh, through Jesus Christ, believers abundantly conquer. Well, given the kinds of uh, suffering believers encounter in this life and given the varieties of temptations that you and I are called to resist in this age and given the types of tribulation that Christians endure uh, during these years between Christ's first and second comings, uh, Paul really is saying something. Super conquerors, more than conquerors. We abundantly conquer through Christ. He's especially saying something in light of what we looked at last Lord's Day in the first six verses of Revelation 12. Uh, John introduced one of the main characters, a deadly enemy, uh, in the holy war, a great red dragon. Look at verse 3 of chapter 12. And John says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Uh, God's people face a fierce 
and terrifying enemy in this dragon. And unfortunately, God's people are the focus of the dragon throughout this chapter. We'll see more when we return uh, to Revelation 12 in a couple weeks. Uh, but we, his covenant people, uh, believers in both eras, are the focus of the dragon's attention. How, how then do we survive such a terrifying foe as this? How, how do Christians conquer the fierce assaults of the dragon? How, how can we possibly be over-conquerors, to use Paul, Paul's terms, uh, more than conquerors against an enemy like this? That's what we hope to find out in verses 7 through 12. And I believe we can learn how, or at least begin to learn how to conquer the dragon uh, by observing three conquests that we see in these verses before us. There are three conquests here that we need to study. And by studying these three conquests, you and I can discover uh, begin to learn how to become these super conquerors that Paul describes us as, more than conquerors, abundant conquerors through him that loved us. And so as we turn to these three conquests in the verses before us, the first conquest we encounter is the conquest of Michael. Michael and his angels attack the dragon and his, and his angels resulting in their expulsion from heaven. I want to point out three things about Michael's conquest. The first thing I want you to note is the attack itself, uh, which appears for us in verse 7. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. To begin with, who's Michael? Uh, perhaps you are aware of who he is, if you've read the Old Testament at all. But this is the first time we've encountered Michael in the book of Revelation. He's one of God's holy angels that's mentioned several times in the book of Daniel. Uh, but Michael is not your typical rank and file. He's not your typical foot soldier of an angel. In the book of Daniel, he's called a chief prince and a great prince. The book of Jude calls him an archangel. And so Michael is one of the higher ranking angels of, of the heavenly host. Uh, and the book of Daniel also tells us that Michael is given the specific responsibility of guarding God's covenant people, a, a protector of Israel. We also can assume that he's not operating on his own, that this is not Michael's personal war against the dragon. We, we can assume safely that he's operating under orders, the orders of his commander, who would be the sovereign of the universe, Jesus Christ. Uh, I want you to see that this is also not a defensive attack, but an offensive attack. Uh, by the way this is worded, Michael and his angels are not being attacked by the red dragon. They're attacking the red dragon. Look at the wording uh, in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. This attack comes from from Michael and his angels and his commander-in-chief. And we'll see in just a few moments that, that what launches this attack in heaven, this significant event that, that, that starts Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, is the enthronement 
of Jesus Christ at his ascension. More on that later. But first is the attack itself. Then we see next the defeat of the dragon. Uh, take note of who Michael defeats here. Uh, the middle of verse uh, 7. And the, uh, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated. And so to begin with, uh, using John's terms, Michael defeats the dragon. The, again, the, the same dragon we saw last week in verse 3 and that I, I read about just a moment ago. Last Sunday, we, we mentioned four characteristics of the red dragon, and I just want to summarize them uh, most briefly. Uh, first, he's intent on killing. We understand this from the red color, which is associated with, with warfare. He's incredibly evil. Uh, John describes him as a seven-headed mythical sea monster. Uh, that was a, a believed to be a force of great evil in the ancient world. He's, he's immensely powerful. Uh, John says he has ten horns, not just two large animal horns, but ten. He, his power is immense, very difficult to kill. He's fourth, sovereign over his realm. Uh, that's what the seven diadems uh, describes. Uh, Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. He rules the kingdom of darkness, the evil world system, and all who've joined his rebellion. This is who Michael defeats to begin with, but we can, we can go further on and say that Michael is defeating the devil. Uh, John said that the dragon was a, a sign up in verse 3, a symbol, and verse 9 tells us who he represents. Look at verse 9 with me. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent. The dragon is, is uh, uh, he's identified here as Satan who took the form of a servant in the Garden of Eden. And you recall that as a serpent, he deceived Adam and Eve into eating uh, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which you recall plunged all of creation into the chaos of sin. So he is our old enemy, our long-standing opponent, all the way back to the beginning, that ancient serpent. Uh, verse 9 goes on to say, uh, uh, that ancient serpent who is called the devil. Uh, the devil uh, essentially means the slanderer. Uh, Satan is known for his slander. The person he slanders the most is God, uh, I believe. Uh, he slanders God's good character. This is what he did in the Garden of Eden. Satan had Eve believing that God was withholding something good from them. Uh, this is what he says in Genesis chapter 3. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the implication is he's trying to withhold this from you. Satan does the same thing to, to you and me. Slanders God and has us doubting the goodness of God before we know it. Would a good God allow something like that to happen to you? He whispers. I don't know why you follow him. He's clearly not as good as, you th as he claims to be. That's the kind of things we hear. The dragon Michael defeats 
is the devil, the one who slanders God's character. But nine, verse 9 goes on to say he's called the devil and Satan, uh, derived from a Hebrew term that simply means adversary. Uh, this is used interchangeably with the word devil throughout the New Testament, synonyms almost. And then verse 9 concludes, the deceiver of the whole world. That identifies his primary activity as deception. You're, you might remember that this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus speaking says to them, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The, the devil deceives all those who belong to this world, this evil system that's opposed to Christ and opposed to his rule. He is the deceiver of the whole world. So Michael defeats the dragon who he goes on to identify as uh, the devil. So we see the defeat of the dragon. Michael and his angels defeat him. But then the third thing we see in this first portion is the expulsion of the dragon. The dragon and his angels are expelled from heaven. Look at verse 8 again. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. What does it mean and there was no longer any place for them in heaven? This is not referring to the original fall of Satan that took place before creation, the one described in Isaiah 14 and I, I believe Ezekiel 28. This is not that fall. This is much later. And so what does this mean? There was no longer any place for them in heaven. What, what place did Satan have in heaven after the fall? Well, think of the book of Job. From the early chapters of the book of Job, what do we see Satan doing? We see him coming into the presence of God to accuse Job. Job chapter 1 says, Now there was a day uh, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. We see Satan here has some access to heaven still after his fall, uh, coming to play the accuser, coming to bring charges against Job and, and against God himself, for that matter. And Satan accuses God of buying Job off by blessing him. And you remember, uh, Satan accuses God that, uh, accuses Job that he's after all only in it for the money, the way you've blessed him. What else is he going to do? You remove that and he'll stop following you. We see him here in the presence of God acting as an accuser. We see that something very similar and, and probably the same th kind of thing in Zechariah chapter 3 where Joshua the high priest is standing in God's presence. Remember this verse? Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord Christ and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Once again, Satan, we see, is in the presence of God, uh, accusing Zechariah because he's standing before God with uh, filthy clothes, sin-stained clothes. And remember that the Lord removes 
Joshua's sin and puts clean clothing on him, giving us a picture of what God would do through Christ. But again, we see him, the accuser. So apparently before Christ died on the cross in the era of the Old Testament believers, Satan had access to the presence of God and would come before uh, the throne to accuse Old Testament believers in the presence of God, as he did with Job, as he did with Zechariah. And, and John even mentions this role of the enemy. At the, the very last phrase in verse 10, look down at your Bible. It says, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But now with Michael's conquest of the devil, Satan and his angels are no longer allowed to do this. They're, they're no longer allowed into God's presence to accuse believers. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And it's not just that there's no place for them in heaven. Look at what verse 9 says. It tells us further, and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Because there was no place for them in heaven, because Satan could no longer enter God's presence to accuse his people, John tells us Satan and his angels are thrown down, hurled down, uh, swept down, forcibly objected from God's presence and cast down to earth. I want you to think back to the Gospels. Jesus describes this same thing in John chapter 12. It says there, Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus looking forward to his death, resurrection, and ascension describes this very thing we're reading this morning. So this is Michael's conquest, the first conquest of our passage. We see him attack the dragon. We see him defeat the dragon. And as a result, the, the dragon is expelled from heaven. But what happened to make Michael's conquest possible? Uh, what weakened the dragon and enabled Michael to defeat him, he and his angels? Well, Michael's conquest was possible because of the next conquest that we see in these verses, and that is the conquest of Christ. A loud voice announces that Christ is conquered and Satan has been thrown down. Let me point out three things about Christ's conquest to you. First is that we hear loud voices beginning in verse 10. Notice the loud voices, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, since they're not identified, We've seen angels make loud voices like this. Uh, we've uh, heard the 24 elders. It might be them. It might even be believers who are shouting Christ's triumph. It says a loud voice. We know there's more than one, however, because at the end of verse 10, it says our brothers, uh, using the plural pronoun. So these are a multitude of voices speaking in unison as though one voice, several voices shouting out uh, the triumph of Christ, which is what we hear about next in the song of triumph. They shout the immense conquest of Christ 
a chorus of Christ's conquest, and they sing about four things. Four themes in their song in verse 10. They first, they, they mentioned his salvation. First, they describe his salvation in verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation of God has come. Uh, salvation meaning deliverance, rescue. Uh, what did Christ deliver us from, save us from, rescue us from through his conquest? Well, maybe perhaps the chief thing was the penalty of sin. His rescue covered several things, but primarily the penalty of sin. Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The death that Paul's referring to here is not just physical death. Uh, it especially refers to separation from God in a place of eternal conscious torment. How did Christ deliver us from the penalty of sin? He took on himself. He took our sins on himself. And dying as our substitute, he paid the penalty that we deserved to pay. As the word tells us in uh, the book of 1 Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. We escape the penalty of sin by trusting in Christ as our Savior and Lord. Uh, we, uh, we escape this penalty through faith in his atoning death. So uh, with his conquest, salvation has come. They go on to sing about his power. With his conquest, his power has come. As verse 10 continues, now the salvation and the power have come. Uh, the conquest of Christ freed us from the power of sin. Jesus' triumph on the cross freed us from slavery to sin. And this we read about in, in John 8 where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul said that he was in bondage to sin, but when we trust Christ as our Savior and Lord, our slavery to sin comes to an end. Now Paul recounts this precious truth in Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. A few verses later, he says, For sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So the voices sing about his power, uh, the power of God, the power of Christ uh, to deliver us from sin's slavery. They go on to sing thirdly about his kingdom. Uh, the next thing we see in verse 10 now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God have come. Jesus announced this throughout his ministry, that his kingdom had come. He began his earthly ministry with these words, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And then speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, Jesus said, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. At his first coming, he inaugurated his kingdom, initiated his kingdom. Uh, and we wait for his second coming where it will be consummated. It, it is now and not yet. Uh, and, and through faith in Christ, we have been delivered from Satan's kingdom to become part of Christ's kingdom. Listen to, to Paul say it in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So, so they sing about his kingdom. Uh, with his conquest, his kingdom has come, and through faith in Christ, we've been transferred from one kingdom to the other, from, from the kingdom of light to the kingdom, uh, kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of light, to the domain of Satan, to the domain of Christ. And then lastly, they sing about his reign. They sing about his glorious reign. Ascending to the right hand of the Father, Christ has begun his reign. And this is also in verse 10 as they round out their, their song. Now the salvation and the power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Authority means right to rule, right to reign, uh, the authority to have dominion over something. Official authority, ruling authority is what, we, what this describes. And think back a few chapters. We, we saw this conferred on Christ in chapter 5. Do you remember? You probably don't remember. Uh, let me recount it for you, the, this glorious portion about how Christ ascends to the throne and takes the scroll from the Father's hand. Listen to, the, listen to John describe it. and um, He says, In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This is God's plan for the conclusion of history. And Christ goes up and receives the scroll from his hand as if to carry out the plan. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. John is describing Christ ascending to the right hand of the Father. His ascension. He alone 
worthy to take God's plan from him and execute it throughout history. He alone is worthy because he is the lamb who was slain to redeem people for God. This is what David described in, in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this ascension is what Peter describes in 1 Peter 3, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And then my favorite description of all is Paul's, which if I've shown you once, I've shown you a million times. These glorious verses that, that don't await Christ's return for him to reign, he will reign in a visible way when he comes back. He's reigning now, right now. Without further ado, Paul says, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So the angels sing this. Now, they say, that word now, back in uh, chapter 12, now, with Christ, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority, the ruling authority of his Christ have come. Christ has conquered. Through death, through resurrection, and through his ascension, Christ has conquered. Loud voices proclaim this. Well, there's one more thing, one more very important thing to see about this conquest. And the third thing we see about his conquest is the accuser. Again, uh, the accuser comes up again, and John points out that, yes, Christ has even conquered the accuser. Look in the end of verse 10 where we've left off, and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. He's thrown down because when Christ ascended to the throne at the Father's right hand, he began to plead for you and me. He uh, began to plead for Jamie Basso at the Father's right hand. He began to plead for Larry Wing at the Father's right hand. He began uh, to plead for Bill Codwise at the Father's right hand and ever lives to plead our case before the Father. Listen to Paul say it in, in Romans chapter 8. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed present tense, is interceding for us. Uh, the book of Hebrews 
says it this way, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so because Christ has ascended to the Father's throne and, and always lives to plead our case before the Father, to plead the merits of his blood that have been applied to us, to, pre, to, uh, to plead that our sin is atoned for, because of that, <coughs> Satan has no basis to accuse us before God. There is nothing for him to stand on before God because Christ is there pleading, interceding for you and I before the throne. There's nothing he can say. And I tricked you a little. I left out a phrase from Romans 8. This is how it begins. Uh, the verse I showed you earlier, who is to condemn? The force of the sentence is not a... It's a rhetorical question, and the force of the rhetorical question is, there's no one who could possibly condemn. No one could even dare to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So before the Father's throne, Satan has nothing to say. He cannot possibly condemn us before God. Because our intercessor is right there at his right hand. And whoever lives to plead for us, who is interceding for us, and that's why they've been hurled down to earth, ejected from the throne room. There's no longer any place for them in heaven. Praise the Lord. Well, a Puritan named William Gurnall illustrated what Christ is doing, and he said it like this. Suppose a king's son should escape from a city under siege, but had to leave his wife and children behind, whom he loved as his own soul, and these all facing death by sword or famine, if, he, if help did not come soon. Could this prince, when he arrived at his father's house, please himself with the delights of the court and forget the distress of his family? Wouldn't he come quickly to his father, having their cries and groans always in his ears, and before he ate or drank, complete his errand before his father and plead with him, if he ever loved him, that he would send all the force of his kingdom to raise the siege so that none of his dear family should perish? That's what Christ is doing for you and I before the throne of the Father. And so, thirdly, we see the accuser mentioned again, and because of Christ's conquest, that's why he's ejected, because Christ ever lives to plead our case and plead the merits of his blood on our behalf. There's no room, there's no place for the accuser any longer in heaven. Not that he stopped accusing us. We'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, but this is the conquest of Christ. Uh, the glorious conquest of Christ. The, the loud voices, the song of triumph. 
and the accuser thrown down, cast away. One more conquest to see, and this is where the rubber meets the road. It's the conquest of believers. Uh, believers conquer the furious dragon through the blood of Christ and the gospel. And two things to mention about the conquest of believers. First, we see the conquest itself. And we find this in verse 11. And John simply begins, And they have conquered him. They, referring to our brothers up in the previous phrase, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And they have conquered him. Our brothers have conquered him. Notice the verb tense. It's, it's past tense. They have conquered. He writes with confidence that all believers will conquer, even though eternity for many of them is still in the future. Excuse me. <coughs> uh, what's, what's the basis for John's confidence? How can he assure us that all believers will conquer the dragon? Well, his confidence is based on two things. His confidence is, first of all, based on the cross. They conquer through the cross. Verse 11 continues, They have conquered him, the dragon, by the blood of the Lamb. Christ's atoning death on the cross was the death blow for Satan. His atoning death was the death blow for Satan. Uh, we read about it in our scripture reading and listen to the way that Paul put it in that last verse of our scripture reading. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Rulers and authorities meaning uh, demonic rulers and authorities. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, or it could say in it, meaning in the cross. I've underlined the word disarmed because it's perhaps the most important word in the sentence. Uh, it's when, when used of clothing, it means to, to, to undress, to strip off clothing, uh, like you do when you come out from working in the yard and you're all hot and sweaty, you strip off those uh, dirty clothes. When it's used with weapons, it means to disarm someone. Uh, and through the cross, it says Jesus has disarmed Satan and his demons. He stripped them of their power. They're, of course, still active. Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. So they, they're still active, but we wrestle against a defeated enemy. They're... they're their power is significantly limited. Uh, you can even say that they're bound, restrained by Christ. But the wrestling Paul describes is, is wrestling against a defeated enemy. His time is short, his outcome is sure. He will be vanquished. June 6, 1944, 
D-Day was the day that American and British and Canadian forces invaded Normandy on the northern coast of France. It was, it was probably the decisive day of World War II. Once the Allies got ashore and established a, be a beachhead on those shores of France, the, uh, the die was cast for Adolf Hitler and his forces. They weren't defeated by any means. There were significant battles yet to come, but the writing was on the wall. Once D-Day took place, it was the beginning of the end. D-Day was decisive, but the war didn't actually end until VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, which was uh, nearly a year later. Uh, this was when people celebrated and began to sing and shout and uh, rejoice. Several photographs of this day, as well as VJ Day, Victory Over Japan Day, that came later. This is, this is what it's like for you and I. D-Day took place at the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. The writings on the wall, Satan's days are short and numbered. When we get to VE Day will be when Jesus returns visibly and in great power. And his rule will become visible that is now invisible. And we will rejoice probably far more than these people will. Because our Lord has come back. Believers conquer through the cross, that Satan has been soundly defeated and his power is significantly restrained. He's been disarmed. But there's another means of conquest for believers over the dragon, and that's the gospel. Uh, the gospel message, again, look at verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony which is the gospel message that, that they share, the good news about Christ and His payment for sin on the cross and His defeat of our ancient foe. That's the message we proclaim. It's the message that you and I proclaim to the world. And it's the message that we also proclaim to ourselves. Because while Satan can no longer accuse us before God like he did with Job and Joshua, he still accuses us directly of past sins and, and tries to convince us that we're not God's children. Listen to Dr. Joel Beakey describe how he accuses us now. It says, he says, as the accuser, the devil can influence our memory of past sins. Dirty jokes we heard years before we were converted still stick in our minds. Sinful relationships we entered before we were converted still haunt us. Filthy images we saw years ago still pollute our minds, yet, yet we can't remember last week's sermon. That is because the devil likes to dredge up our past and then blackmail us with the record of our sin. Now, don't raise your hand. 
Has anything like that ever happened to you? I'm guessing probably so if you know Christ and are trying to follow him. While he can't accuse us before God because there's, there's no basis of an accusation with, with Jesus there at his right hand, he comes directly to us. You dirty, rotten, filthy, low down, and he goes on. And we believe it. When he accuses us, we must turn to the gospel, the objective work of Christ on the cross. Let me explain that. When Satan accuses us, it's not our subjective feelings we turn to for help. They have no value against his accusation. How you feel about what you hear could be meaningless. When he accuses believers, we must rely on the factual statements of what transpired between us and Christ from the Word of God. Not whether we feel like a believer or not. That we rely on the fact that the payment for our sin has been made. That it was accepted by the Father, evidenced by Christ rising from the dead. That we've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, just as the high priest Joshua was. And that we now stand before the Father's throne, free from the stain of that sin, and free from Satan's accusation and his attempt to make it stick. We conquer through objective fact. It's not true. I know it's not true. That is not true about me. Because I trusted in Christ. He paid for my sin. The Father accepted His payment. And I stand before my Father free from blemish and accusation. That's what we do when He accuses. And He accuses often. We conquer by holding to the truth of these factual statements. And we cling to this precious gospel even if it costs us our lives. Verse 11 ends. The word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. We love this gospel, this truth that has delivered you and me from judgment. This truth that has defeated our enemy. We love it more than life itself if it comes down to it. Which would we rather have, the assurance of life in this world or assurance of life in the next? <coughs> There's nothing in the world that can measure up to the concrete reality of Christ's glorious gospel. This is their conquest. Believers, and that includes you and I, conquer through the cross 
and through the gospel. And then next we see, and lastly we see, their conflict in this life. Look at verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and shout you who dwell in them. Great news for you. The devil's been thrown out of your domain and no longer allowed to return before the Father. But woe to you, on O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Expelled from heaven, he turns his attention uh, to Christ's church. We'll see in the next section. It describes it more specifically. He comes down in fury because he knows his time is short. But take heart, friend. Take heart in that phrase from verse 11. Even in his fury, it says, and they have conquered him. The confidence of John that we will conquer and our confidence to conquer the dragon in this life is, is through the cross of Christ that the devil's been defeated, disarmed, and through the gospel message, these factual statements about who we really are in Christ Jesus. Listen to the way Paul says it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It is, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the conquest John describes. So how do we conquer this terrifying enemy from verse 3? who emerges again in verses 7 through 12. These fierce assaults that we experience in this age, on this earth, and how can we possibly be described as an over-conqueror of an enemy like this? We learn to conquer by observing these three conquests. First, Michael's conquest, uh, and then the, the amazing conquest of Christ and the, the song of triumph that's sung in heaven and finally, the conquest of believers that John anticipates through the cross of Christ in the gospel message. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray you would use these words to give us hope. There are downcast believers sitting before me. Some of them at least are. You've conquered Christ. You won. Let us live in light of your triumph. The devil has been thrown down he has been defanged. He has limited power, but through your work on the cross and through your gospel message, the facts of what you've done for us, Jesus, enable us to be abundant conquerors 
of our enemy, the dragon. Strengthen us, Christ Jesus, with Your Word and do this work in us by Your good Spirit. We pray, Savior, in Your name. Amen.